Now, let's turn to our Bible. Luke 9, 46 through 56. Uh, Luke 9, 46 through 56. My sermon this morning is learning humility from Jesus. What is humility according to Jesus? Luke 9, 46 through 56. The Word of God reads, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, (laughs) do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship you. We thank you for the opportunity to sing praises to your name, to pray to you, to read the scriptures, to gather together, to encourage one another, exhort one another. And we pray that the exhortation from your word may be unto edification and to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the gospel realities that impact our daily lives, as Freddie has asked Dayron and I to hammer and emphasize is the aspect of humility. Humility is a very difficult virtue. I sometimes hear preachers preaching about humility and exhorting people to be humble, and I wonder if they have the same problem I have. Perhaps they don't. And it is that humility is like trying to grasp air in your fist. You can blow in your hand, but now try to grab it. You can't. You can't grasp the air that you can blow into your hand. And humility has that element. The moment you believe you are humble, trust me, long ago you ceased to be humble. It is a very difficult virtue. In fact, many times, Humble people are more aware of their pride than what they are of their being humble. Humility is a disposition. In, in the etym- the etymologic- etymologically, humility is having a, an abased mind, having a thought that is flattened, that is down. When you think to yourself, not what you portray to people, It's very easy to portray humility to win favor, but that's not humility. But your thinking, your self-thinking, 
he's, he's flattened, he's obeys. Even the psalmist says, I don't, I don't dedicate myself to great things. I'm like a weaned child in his mother's bosom. And that's the way he sees himself before God. Humility is not an inferiority complex, by the way. Humility is not what I felt when I would walk into a basketball court. And from the distance, I don't know if it happens to you, from the distance you see people who are tall. And you say, oh, maybe I'm about their height. But as you grow nearer, says, this guy is 6'6", how am I going to guard him? So that's not humility. Humility is not feeling, I'm not going to make this one. I don't have the ability. No, humility, according to Romans 12, is thinking of ourselves according to the measure of grace we have received. Not higher, not lower. God gave us a measure of grace. Boom, amen, that's it. And we think, we think according to that, remembering that it is God the one who gives gifts. Humility is esteeming others as better than ourselves. Now, you may say, well, if they are better, it's easy. It's easy to esteem the boss, the director, the VP, the higher hierarchical person higher than me. But what about if they are not, technically speaking? You are humble when you still consider them and treat them as better than you. In the language of Romans 12, when you run to choose their honor, when you prefer one another in honor. Let someone else take the credit. Let someone else take the glory. Something good happened at work. Let the person who helped me be the one who is credited with it, not me. Let me not be the one trying to shine, but my neighbor, my brother, my sister. Humility is quick to praise, slow to condemn. Humility is Christ-likeness at the end of the day. Jesus said, learn from me because I am of a meek and humble spirit. And as you learn humility and meekness from me, Jesus said, you shall find rest for your souls. If we were truly humble, truly humble, we would not have conflicts at work. We would not be bothered by the things that bother us. We would not be disturbed by the people who are promoted while we are being bypassed. Humility is learning from Jesus. And of course, <laughs> Jesus is the portrait of humility. He even entered Jerusalem, meek and gentle, riding on a donkey, not on a horse, with crowns of victory as Romans, Roman emperors or generals would do. No, he walked into Jerusalem, meek and humble, as was prophesied of him. Paul, when writing to the Corinthians and exhorting them and even rebuking them, he said, I urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, do this or that. Peter exhorted the same thing. Learned humility from Christ. And this is what Peter writes of him. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus indeed was that Lamb of God that Isaiah describes as going into his sharers without grumbling, without opening his mouth, without protesting. What are we known for, by the way? Are we the union leader at our workplaces? Are we the person that everybody's kind of concerned and you have to kind of tippy-toe around them because it's easily they can rise and, and lift themselves with their protests? 
Or do they resemble this? He did not open his mouth, speaking of Jesus. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers, is silent, so he did not open his mouth. That is a portrayal of Jesus, the God who humbled himself. Look in this passage, teaches us humility in three scenes. If you like theater, if you like stage, well, here's a, here's a little play in which in three scenes, Jesus teaches us humility. Or Luke actually takes portions and Jesus' interactions with the disciples to teach humility. Now, I am not ready to affirm that what we read happened consecutively. Seems to be from other Gospels that these events were not necessarily one after the other, but Luke is making a topical arrangement to bring a point. And the point he's bringing is, Humility is greatness before God. Humility is kindness, and humility is forbearance to those who oppose. That's what we see in those three scenes. So let's take a look at them again and see what we gather from it. Jesus is talking about his death, his incoming death. Guys, we need to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer in the hands of the Jews and the Pharisees and the leaders, and I'm going to die. And he's plainly, other Gospels say, talking to them about his death. While they are walking, Jesus is walking ahead, according to one of the Gospels, and they are coming behind arguing. You guys are driving your cars, and you have the van full of children, and you hear the... That's mine. No, that's mine. And you stop the car sometimes, and you have to usher uh, or utter serious threats to stop the grumbling. Well, they come grumbling behind like little children. And Jesus says, when they arrive in the place, what is it that you guys were arguing about during your walk? They are ashamed, and they don't want to talk about it. Luke says, yes, but knowing the reasonings of their hearts, knowing the reasonings of their thoughts, he told them, you guys were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. So he uses a practical figure, portray of what humility is, and he brings a child, and one of the Gospels says he put, it, put the child in his, ar- in his arms. This one says that he put him by them, close to them. When he brings the child, he tells them, you guys have to be like this child. Whomever welcomes a child like this in my name, that one is the greatest. Welcomes me, And welcoming me is welcoming God. And being like that child, that is the mark of greatness in the kingdom. Because whomever is the least among you, that one is the greatest. Now it's fascinating to consider that Jesus is talking about his death. And the disciples are arguing who's going to be the heir. Like what a timing, right? Freddie and I speak frequently about the disappointments of the ministry. And there are many. And sometimes you wonder, what, what, what I'm doing, is it worth it? Because I don't see fruit. Well, here's Jesus at the end of his ministry, telling them he's about to die, and the disciples, instead of at least being sad, oh no, they argued, okay, who's going to take his place now? 
What a timing. On another occasion, or perhaps a similar occasion, I think it was another one, one of the Gospels tell that John and James came with Mama, and Mama had a request to Jesus for her boys. And I understand you mothers pray for your children and your life and the center of the universe is your children. I get it. Well, here comes the mother of James and, James and John saying, Jesus, we have a request to make. I have a request to make. Which one? I want my two boys to sit at the highest place of honor in your kingdom. Jesus has a dialogue with her. The, other, the others become indignant perhaps because they ran ahead and brought mama to ask what they wanted to ask. But regardless, here's a case of people wanting to be first, wanting to have honor, wanting to have glory. This platform is coveted by many because it gives you like the eyes of people and the attention of people. That's not the ministry. The ministry is when your pastor... <laughs> gets on a ladder there, and if he falls from the ladder installing the TV, he could kill himself. That's the ministry, but nobody saw. Now I took his reward away because I'm telling you. That's the ministry. Or the ministry is when Dayton, who should have been preaching today, but asked me to bail him out, and yes, you owe me. Um, <laughs> but he says, brother, can you cover me because I have to take care of the children. Christina has to rehearse and be with the people during the weekend. That's the ministry. The ministry is not what people see and what people observe and even admire. The ministry is what happens in the dark places, faithfulness where nobody sees and nobody notices and nobody cares. And here's Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, pulling a child by them. Remember, we serve a God who knows the intentions of the heart. I've told you, and I will die telling it to you. I am not what you see. Maybe Rogers and Juan and Luis Jose saw what I am. They saw me in my Komatsu t-shirts, in my old shorts that all the time are falling, and I have to keep pulling them, and just saw me as I am. That's what I am. I'm not the guy who stands here with a nice prepared sermon to talk to you. I am what you don't see. Hopefully, what I am when you don't see is what I am. But the point is, Jesus knows the reasoning of the heart. Jesus knows the intentions of the heart. Jesus knows when people stand here to play, if they are trying to make a display and a performance, or if they are really doing their best to the glory of God, even as they did this week and have been doing it for weeks. Their aim is not to please you. Their aim is not to tell the visitors, look how well we sing. Their aim is to raise us up as we worship God at unison, not with a performance, but with a choir of the congregation. That's the whole point. And God knows the desire of the heart and the reasoning of the heart. So he takes this child and says, this is what you need to be. Bring one of those children. Hey, come here. This is greatness in the kingdom. Why? Because children are aware of their weaknesses. They know they are smaller. Children are trusting. They accept what adults say to them. Children are transparent. Every parent knows the shame and the embarrassment of that child saying that truthful statement before the wrong people at the wrong time. 
Because they don't know how to be hypocrites. Remember when I had these pastors who came to visit us, and I started my family worship saying, well, uh, last night during our family worship, and my son Miguel says, Dad, we didn't do worship last night. (laughs) There you go. Because children are transparent. They are unassuming. They do not pretend to be who they are not. I grew up with, in a high school of rich people. Some of them came last time, and you met some of them. And uh, I didn't know I was poor. I realized I was poor when I was 13 or 14. But when you're in that high school with all of these rich kids, you have no idea that you're poor. It was very common for us. You go to the break time, you don't have money, you don't have food with you, and you ask the guy who's eating by you, hey, give me some. To this day, one of them is eating by you, and he, and he passes you the sandwich to eat. To this day, he does it. We're on a boat the other day, and he's eating something. Here, have some. Because that's the way you grew up. Now, I remember going to the baseball stadium once, and I found some of my friends, and they are eating something. And I would go running to ask for what they're eating, but my dad was there. And I understand. My dad felt ashamed of seeing his boy asking from his friends, and he called me. Don't ask. Here's some money. Go buy. And then I learned it is wrong to ask your friends when you're in need. And then I learned that when I have a problem, I don't tell anybody. I just bear it alone, stoically, because I am a Christian man. But see, children don't have those problems. And that's why Jesus says, you have to become like children to come into the kingdom. You're just unassuming. You don't need to pretend who you're not. Children are credulous. They believe what they're told. Therefore, be careful how you deceive them. In this church, we, all of us who labor here, have other jobs. So we spend the week, like you do, working among people who are not church people for the most part. And you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference how credulous, how believing, how naive, how childlike Christians are. And there are some wolves out there that take advantage of that. Be careful, Jesus says, they're, f- the, they're angels. See the face of my Father in heaven. Be, bear, be very careful how you treat one of those little ones who believe in me. Now, at the same time, the Bible calls us to be mature. Paul says to the Ephesians, I want you to be like men, not like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but that you grow into maturity into the measure of the stature of Christ. She says, how can I be a child and at the same time be a mature man resembling Christ? Perhaps the best explanation is 1 Corinthians 14.20. Brethren, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be like children. But in regard to your thinking, be adults. It's okay to be a child for evil. It's okay not to know the meaning of certain words because you're not in that world. But in your thinking, be mature, be Christ-like. Jesus says, the one who is least among you, that one is the greatest. Remember, we cannot impress God. I love that psalm. Pastor, we used to have, those who remember Jeff Gwynn, loved to quote Psalm 147.10 to me. 
because I would not wear shorts. I was embarrassed to wear shorts until he took it away from me. And then he would tell me, God does not delight in the legs of a man. <laughs> what does that mean? We can relate to that. We admire Air Jordan or LeBron or Otani, the super magnificent pitcher, ERA of .49 and at the same time batting 300. What a machine. And we admire those things. God is not impressed by people. Please understand it. God is not impressed by us except this, which the psalmist says. He delights in those who fear him and hope in him. Do you want to impress God? This impresses him. The contrite and the broken heart God will not despise. That's the way it works. Secondly, and more briefly, humility is kind. Where do we get that from in our text? Verse 49. John comes, Master! I love that. It reminds me of my youth. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but we hindered him because he's not walking with us. And Jesus says, don't hinder him. If he's not against you, he is for you. I'm going to say a word that's going to raise some ears. Humility is inclusive. Not that inclusivity. No, no, no. I'm not talking about that one. Humility does not endorse sin. And transgenderism and homosexualism and all of these things. We, yes, we are merciful, we're kind, we are winsome, we bring the gospel, but we cannot change the names of what they are. I'm not talking about that type of inclusivity. But humility embraces those who serve Christ and who do the work of Christ even if they are not walking with us. Humility doesn't have a sectarian spirit. John didn't feel comfortable with this individual casting out demons but not walking with them. Because John felt that he had the copyright and exclusivity to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no you don't. If they are not against you, if they are casting out demons in my name, they are doing the work of the kingdom. Leave them alone. You don't have to hinder them for that. You don't have to denounce them for not being exactly in your camp intent. Humility makes us rejoice over the success of others. Remember Paul in Rome? He arrives in shackles and he finds people that he had not preached to, people he was not connected with, Jews that had converted and were disciples and had arrived in Rome. And they were preaching the gospel already, completely unconnected to, or disconnected from Paul's ministry. And when they knew that Paul arrived, they made a point of separating themselves from that Jewish guy who came here in prison because he's a heckler. So they continued preaching Christ, but they did it in contention. Paul says they did it even to add 
pain to my shackles. Do you know what was Paul's answer? I rejoice because Christ is being preached. That's what humility does. Humility rejoices in the success of others even if they are not exactly in the same tribe and reservation we are. This week, somebody in our high school chat, most of these guys are Roman Catholic, and, and they call me their pastor. I, they know I'm not a pastor, but they call me their pastor. And they tease me with all kinds of things about it too. But this week, one of them sends something. says, oh, I want to ask uh, forgiveness from PPF. That's the way they call me. It's a, it's a nickname. Don't worry about it. But I want to ask forgiveness from the pastor because I'm going to send this prayer from the Pope. And he sends it. And I reply to the group, there's nothing to forgive. There's the Pope praying to God, the only one who can forgive through Christ, the only way we can obtain forgiveness to have mercy. There's nothing wrong in that prayer. I don't have to forgive anything. You take that same statement 30 years ago from me? Oh, that Pope is an antichrist. That Pope is this and that and that. But the Pope is sending a very appropriate prayer. And if in that context of Roman Catholics, their leader is sending the right gospel-centered prayer, praise be God. Am I an ecumenical person? No, I'm not. I'm just saying, when Christ is being preached then you rejoice because humility is not inclusive. Thirdly, humility is forbearing. Forgiving, patient, all those are synonyms with those who oppose. Verse 51, time to go to Jerusalem. Night is arriving or the evening is arriving. He sends two disciples, please go into that village and see if they have an inn or somebody who can host us. When they found out that he was not staying with them, but he was just going overnight to continue going south to Jerusalem, they said, uh-uh, we don't want him here. We don't want any of you guys here. So James and John come back, and I can't stop laughing at that verse whenever I read it. Lord, they said no. Do you want us to pray and send fire from heaven to burn them? Think of it. There are people like that come across them in the internet, sometimes even here in Cornerstone. Burn them. Hang them all. Because they are not eye to eye with us. And Jesus told them, you guys don't know what spirit you come from. He just said, he rebuked them and went into another village. I love the name that James and John received. Boanerges. That's how Jesus called them. The sons of thunder. And there are theories about why. Commentators are divided. Because honestly, the text doesn't say why he called them sons of thunder. Some people say, oh, that's because they were impetuous. They were fervent. They were this feisty individual. And we all have that friend. Feisty, impetuous. You need anything, they go. And if they need to take three walls down, they take it. But it was these walls. Oops, sorry, we need to rebuild them. Maybe people say, that's because they were that way. But others say, <laughs> I like that one, that it was because of their father. Figure, picture their being called. 
They are fishing, mending the nets of the family business with their father around the lake of Gennesaret, the lake of Galilee. And then comes his master and says, hey, you too, come. And they leave everything and follow Jesus. Could you imagine the fit that Zebedee threw? Where are you clowns going? You're not following that guy. Here's a family business. We're mending nets. What are you doing? Probably he just was fuming. And perhaps Jesus, in a humorous way, called him, boy, that is really feisty. You're the sons of thunder. Perhaps. It's not in the text. It's a speculation. Regardless, the sons of thunder wanted fire from heaven. The Son of God says, I didn't come to lose people. I came to gain them. I came to win them. Remember that text in John 5? He who does not believe is already condemned. Sometimes we forget that. Whomever does not believe is already condemned. And Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn people. I came to save them. They are already in the hole. My business is not to condemn them again. It's to get them out of their condemnation. Do we have that heart? When we interact with people, especially those who oppose, are we just looking for the point of fighting and making a statement and being bold and brave for the kingdom? I think I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. There's a lot of famous preachers out there, very bold at a conference. Everybody's a Christian. I wonder how they would speak if their audience were unbelieving co-workers. Would they be that bold? Are they that bold when they're coming on their airplane, perhaps flying business or first class to this conference with the guy who's sitting by there, by them? Perhaps not. Because it's easy to be bold in the echo chamber. Be careful who do you model your evangelism from. I'm not saying don't speak the truth. People have to know they broke the law. People have to know they are sinners. People have to know there's no way to please God except through Christ. Because the righteousness of God is only through the law or through Christ. And you cannot keep it by the law. Yes, you have to articulate that. But you don't have to be obnoxious and just to be the super fighting bull with the gospel. Because then you can come back to church and tell people how feisty you are. No, you are here to win and to bring people and to show patience to those who oppose. Now, if you think that it is because I'm going soft because I'm 60, 2 Timothy 2, 22, 24, and 25, Holy Spirit-inspired words... The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, that opponents may be gently instructed. Actually, my version reads, opponents, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. So in conclusion, we have three contrasting scenes which point to Jesus. 
Jesus' character and how the gospel of our Savior ought to impact who we are. Three contrasting sins, I mean scenes, that call us to imitate Him who is the paradigm of humility. And Peter says, we must walk in His footsteps. Somebody has said that the imagery in the Greek is that when you're walking on the beach and you find feet marked, that's funny to me because I have flat feet. And then I see all these nicely formed feet. And when I plant mine, it looks like a bear went by. And I always, I cannot do that. I says, how could I put my foot there? I can't because you have these nice arches there. Mine doesn't have an arch. You just see this thing there. But anyways, you're walking on the beach. You see those feet and you just try to find which is like mine that I may step on the one that is like mine. And you're just walking like an idiot, putting your foot in one of those tracks. That's the imagery of that text. You follow Jesus' footsteps. And he said, I am meek and I am humble in spirit. Learn from me. I love it that the story ends in victory because the sons of thunder, the Boanerges who wanted to call fire from heaven, James was the first martyr of the church. And John is called who? How do we know John? The disciple of what? Disciple of love. So yes, you can walk in those footsteps and change into the imagery of your Savior. Humility is not a virtue to pursue. I'm not here to moralistically tell you, from now on, be humble. That doesn't happen. Tomorrow, when that person that really knows how to push my buttons at the office and sends that email that's going to push the button, my first thought is going to be, Lord, when will they fire him or her? That's going to be my thought. But I hope I'll remember my Savior who says, no. You, I didn't come to fire people. I came to save people. And then as we consider him who did not regard equality with God, something to grasp. See, when my flesh is wounded, and it's wounded frequently, our wives wound our flesh frequently, don't they? And our husbands too. And our children. And people in the church. And the preacher and the pastor, or the deacons. We, we get wounded frequently. I encourage you to try to do what I try to do, though I fail miserably. You stop and consider Jesus. Eh, that's easy. Everybody says that. Okay. But think about this. He did not regard being equal to God. He did not regard being in the form of God and just emptied himself, removed himself from his position of exaltation and humbled, taking, taking the form of a man and being in the condition of a man, he humbled himself to the uttermost even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. 
And as you consider him, then perhaps your flesh will be deflated and you will bow down. Say, Lord, forgive me. Please make me more like your son. Amen. Father, we come to you so aware of our failings in this department of imitating Jesus' humility. But we come to you also very aware that our standing before him is not that we do it right, but that he did it right. It is his righteousness where we stand. His righteousness on life, his righteousness in death. And in him we pray, be glorified in our lives as we humbly walk before you and before people. May we serve one another and prefer one another in love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.